All right, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, it's been a little while. You know, I kind of fell off schedule again. Sorry about that. Uh, it's still coming out Tuesday, hopefully. Uh, I'm recording this at like 11 o'clock because I was doing stuff today. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about the Sanctuary of Wings. And you know what? It's been a long time since I've been this satisfied with the ending of a series. Like, I, I have to admit, Marie Brennan just keeps topping herself. Makes me really wish the, the His Majesty Dragon Temeraire series had ended better. He kind of just petered out near the end, which, fine, it's alright. Um, I love the first two books, but Marie Brennan just kept going through all five of these books. Each one being better and better, and this one, this might be the best one. I'm just saying. Uh, it's either this one or The Voyage of the Basilisk, one of those two. Or maybe Labyrinth of the Drinks. I don't know. The last three are so good, but The Sanctuary of Wings is really good. Okay. So, for those of you who don't know, this is the fifth book in a series. I have reviewed all the other books. There is no reason you should be here if you haven't either listened to those reviews or read the books. Okay? We're all good? All right. Well, for those of you who are still here, even though you haven't read the books, I'm going to describe the plot and then ask you to leave so you can read the books and be surprised because there's actually a twist in this one. Like a really, really big twist. And it's really interesting. Um, so, for those of you who do not know, again, glaring, just, just imagining me, like, sulking when I think of you. Uh, <laughs> joking. Uh, but, uh, so, this series takes place in a world that's a lot like our own, different country names, but, like, for example, there's Skirland, Skirland which is basically just Victorian, Victorian England. Just think about it that way, it's easier. Um, and we follow a woman by the name of Isabella Camhurst, who's later known as Lady Trent, who she's, you know, it's Victorian England, so women are really supposed to do other stuff, but she wants to become a dragon naturalist. It's really frowned upon, but the first few books, she uh, married someone who had access to a lot of tomes and, you know, was a scholar. So they shared a mutual interest. He didn't, you know, he didn't try and suppress her interest and let her explore her desires. Eventually, uh, he ends up taking her on a research trip with a friend of his, and they discover the secret to preserving dragon bone, because that's the big twist of this world. Basically, everything's the same, except there are dragons, which means everything's different, because Marie Brennan actually thinks through the, uh, you know, historical implications of all their stuff. Uh, she's basically made up a whole new world, just based on the vague outline of ours. Uh, it took me until this book to be sure that there's this is definitely the same globe. Like, the continents are definitely the same. Uh, this fifth book takes place in the what is basically their version of the Himalayas. So, uh, you know. Anyway, stuff happens. Uh, she goes on various trips around the world, learning more and more about dragons, and this strange ancient civilization named the Draconians, who seem to have had some great connection to dragons, and she believes maybe may have even found ways to tame and, and breed them, uh, which is something they're still trying to do. So, for, again, for those of you who don't know, I'm going to have to talk about spoilers of the last book, because this kind of takes place as a result of it. Uh, at the end of that last book, uh, she had discovered an ancient Dragonian ruin, which, along with her husband, her new husband, I guess, um... And, uh, she's, you know, living a pretty good life now. Uh, she's not scraping by her money anymore. She has her funding. She's been doing de decent research. She's been contacting other people. But she hasn't been out in the field in a while. And, you know, she just feels a little incomplete. Uh, she craves that old adventure, you know, the Voyage of the Basilisk, where she rode a sea serpent. 
uh, going out into the desert and dealing with, you know, all that excitement of, oh, what will we, what will we find hunting down dragons in the field? She kind of misses it, but she's uh, content enough knowing that she's, you know, done more with her life than most people ever would, even if she still feels restless. Until a, um, basically it's, uh, there, the Skirland in this, in this universe is at war with the China stand-in. I forget their name at the top of my head. But, so basically this re- rebel from that country, they're, you know, then it's sort of the whole, hey, there's an illegitimate government in place, we are the rebels, rebellion, um, Lady Trent has gained some political favor over the years, so he tells her that he had, he comes to her with knowledge that he found a dragon up in the their version of the Himalayas. Now, there is literally no reason a dragon should have been there. They don't live there, and they said it was some kind of strange breed. Now, they had determined they had found fossil uh, Isabella had actually found fossils that showed the Draconians had been breeding some strange breed of dragon. I mean, of course, as a dragon natural, she would have been interested anyway, but with this in her mind, she wonders if the two might be the same. There aren't any ruins in that area, but, you know, it's very uncharted. Nobody's really gone up there. Uh, this is, like, the kind of area right before mountaineering kind of became a thing. So, it's still a mystery as to how much the Draconians might have been in that area. So, with the possibility of finding a preserved dragon skeleton, a preserved dragon body buried in the ice which would be a rare find in and of itself, they set off to the Himalayas. And then something happens. And Isabella is thrust into a new situation that acts as sort of a final proving ground of all the lessons she's learned in the series. Okay. See, this is the problem with talking about this book without spoilers. It's based on so much other information. You basically have to have read all the other books. You know, her relationship with Suhail, her previous husband, uh, her son Jake, her brother... It all comes back. This is a really a book that takes all the stuff. Like, I honestly believe, I would believe anybody who said Maria Brennan planned this whole thing out and she knew exactly what she was doing in all these books. Because it really feels that way. It feels like this book was a final culmination of everything they've been working to. Just no exceptions. Like, sure, there were a few things. Like, yes, I said goodbye to all these people throughout the years. But it's like... All the lessons she's learned, all the things she's grown from over these last few books, surviving in the green hell, traveling across the world, riding a sea serpent, slowly learning more about the Draconians, uh, learning language, learning about language through her husband Suhail, the various other forms of uh, scientific endeavors that her friends had, like the bird specialist. It all comes back around. And... It's really impressive. I really like it. But the problem is, it comes back around due to one of the coolest twists I have ever seen, and I can't really talk about it until I talk about that twist. So, I'm going to have to stop here on the describing the plot thing. Just know she basically ends up helping um, legitimize the rebellion's new government and um, completes her life's work. That would be the ending of this book. I mean, it's a memoir. It's a set of fictional memoirs, so that goes without saying. But I can't really talk about more, so I'm just going to talk about if I think you should read it. Yes, read this entire series. It's amazing. Okay, on to the spoiler stuff. If you don't want spoilers, and seriously, you should actually uh, read this on your own. It's really good. Okay? Everybody here hasn't read the books? 
or listen to my other podcast, I guess, if you're not a reader. <sighs> They're audiobooks, you know. But I'm not going to complain for the free, free listens. So, the Draconians are half-dragon, half-human hybrids. Yeah. Okay, so, for those of you, just in case nobody's here, uh, all the Draconian ruins, one of the big motifs that throughout the ruins was, like, these dragon-headed humans. Uh, so they thought they were gods, you know, like, sort of like a, uh, Egypt situation, because there's a lot of parallels between ancient Draconian and e- ancient Egypt. They have their own Rosetta Stone parallel. There's the, you know, ha- the animal-headed gods, the lost civilization kind of vibe. There's even a Draconian craze, a lot like the Egyptian craze that came after King Tut's tomb was discovered, which comes from the Watcher's heart being discovered, an untouched, unspoiled tomb that was found mostly because it wasn't that important and because it was trying to hide, be hidden, trying not, not to be some grand monument. So, as a result, um, you know, we just go along thinking, okay, the Draconians, like, by the third third book, you should probably be on the stage of the Draconians probably tamed, tamed dragons. Maybe they were harvesting some of them for the the uh, fire gems, which are this rare gemstone that Isabella found out was came that the Draconians created by um, fossilizing their eggs. That's actually not what happened, but that's what she thought happened anyway. Um, and you know, maybe they were harvested of that. Maybe they were used as you know, just dragons as helpers. Because, you know, of course, domesticating a dragon would be amazing. Of course, any civilization should totally get on that if dragons are real. Um, but no, it turns out... Okay, so in the fir- fourth book, they determined that dragons can adapt to their environments. It's basically the closest thing to a fantasy element the series has, although they try and play it a lot more science fiction And according to some murals and some later stuff in the book... There's a really, really, really rare chance, like, they suggest that this might have been, like, as a result of human dragon, like, blood offerings over dragon eggs for centuries, that when bathed in dragon eggs, there's a really rare chance that they'll mutate into a more humanoid form, producing a slightly different type of dragon. It's believed that maybe over the course of, like, centuries that they slowly developed more intelligence, and eventually they got lucky enough to not just have one of these mutations, but two who were a matched pair. Like, when they say this, they mention this probably took generations upon generations of them performing, like, the original Draconian humans, the humans of that civilization, uh, apparently worshipped dragons, and they even worshipped the Draconians once they started appearing. Uh, likely a result of dra- human sacrifices over dragons, the blood spilling over them, changing the environment of the eggs. Again, it's basically the pseudo-magic of this series. Um, and as a result, they eventually got draconians. And for a long time, they were just, you know, one or two every few generations. But eventually they got lucky enough, and two mutations happened close enough together. And they were both, you know, um, a matched pair, so they were able to breed. And then simply by sustaining them with new blood every generation or so, they were able to slowly build up a population. Make sense? Okay? So, they Isabella finds this out after she is ice, uh, separated from the group and nearly dies in an avalanche. Uh, she falls down into this hidden valley in the mountain range. Uh, think, like, Shangri-La, stuff like that. They even, like, directly compare the Draconians to, like, yetis. They're called, like, snow demons, and they're actually called, they're actually called yetis by some of the locals, uh, who don't know who they, what they are. And it turns out the Draconians, uh, civilization had a massive rebellion. 
It's very unclear. The Draconians believe they were like peaceful protectors and that the humans just turned on them. Uh, some of the human texts say that they become corrupt. It's possible the civilization, it wasn't as clear cut in that both humans and Draconians in power had kind of gotten corrupt over the years and the masses rebelled. And as a result, most of the Draconians just happened to be in the noble side. It's unclear. But that's because, you know, history, blurry, ages of time kind of thing. Um, but the really interesting part is that most of the Draconians are hibernating at that point. And Isabella is found by three sisters who end up deciding to save her life and attempt to communicate with her. Isabella had been trying to... Uh, Isabella's husband, uh, Suhail, had been trying to translate the Draconian language using a, well, their version of the Rosetta Stone. Um, and so she has a basic idea of what some of the words might have sounded like, right? Uh, like, if her husband is correct on the derivatives, on the languages that are derivative of it. He is right, and but it's like a really old dialect, and they kind of had to work it out. Uh, which is really cool because it's, like I said, this is sort of like a boss, like, I actually like to think of this final book as the final boss fight for Isabella. It's a because for those of you who don't play video games, a boss fight at the end of the level isn't just like a big enemy with a massive health bar, or at least it's not supposed to be. Video game companies and MMOs. Uh, a boss fight should be a culmination of all the skills you have been tested on so far. So if you've been, you know, having to deal with enemies that are freezing you in place, the boss should do that too. Uh, if you have to deal with environmental damage, the boss should be able to use that environmental damage in the battle somehow. That kind of thing. And this final challenge of communicating and trying to negotiate peace and even learn about the Draconians and their civilization and then slowly integrate them back with the human world, even though they really, really don't trust her and some of them would probably even want to kill her and even the sisters are very wary of her, and they're only keeping her around because it's getting really clear that humans are eventually going to find them, and a lot of them are getting really worried about it. So while the others are hibernating, and they're watching the flock, they're watching their like livestock and animals, um, along with a few others who are in more isolated, other isolated communities. They try and slowly bond with Isabella. One of them doesn't trust her. The other is a bit, you know, more religious, but understands her ancient, understands her a bit better because she knows some of the older dialects. She was the one that wanted to do this. Uh, another one is a bit more friendly, that kind of thing. And it's a re it's literally a reflection of Isabella trying to communicate with all the different civilizations she's had to deal with during her travels, trying to, you know, learn about dragons, because politics and cultures kept getting in the way of her just studying dragons. Um, she ends up seeing the Dracot... She ends up seeing them as, you know, people, and as um, very, very intelligent, amazing beings who she would like to help protect. She eventually convinces them that she is on their side and she would do everything in their power. She explains to the outside world how there's a noble war, how they're kind of caught in between the border of two, one of the major border areas, and that people are going to keep trying to come through the mountain pass trying to find, you know, routes to sneak armies or supplies through. They're already being, being seen Kyligas, they're kind of airships uh, made from synthetic dragon bone going over the horizon. So, you know, it's getting really tense, and I like it. The sisters are fun. They each have a unique, distinct personality. Um, the elders are, like... Uh, they actually did this really interesting twist, and Isabella even mentions it, is that uh, a lot of the older elders are kind of... Once they, you know, introduce her to them after by wakes up from hibernation, um, a lot of the older elders are more willing to give her a chance, while some of the younger ones want to stick to tradition because it's what kept them safe all these years. And... You get the feeling, and Isabella's living like, 
it's kind of weird how the older ones are, um, usually, you know, it's usually the older people who are wanting to stick to the old ways, but it makes sense in this context because they've been, they've been around long enough to see that humans keep getting closer and closer to their isolated area, whereas these, you know, younger, younger draconians, um, only really see, you know, oh, well, every once in a while a human comes up here, you know, every few months we might have, every, you know, maybe one or two a year we had to deal with, and you get the feeling the elders remember, like, a, you know, a few decades ago when seeing one human a year was cause for concern, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, <sighs> they're so well characterized, and Marie Brennan does such a great job of it. Uh, the ending kind of just, you know, they, the ending is kind of a solution, but it, it's after she gets her to trust him and accept them, and then her brother ends up stumbling upon her with them in the military. She has to flag them down. She was going to slowly start building support for them before she, quote-unquote, found them. The, the original plan was that she was going to say, I'll go back there, start raising support in secret, because uh, I believe, saying I believe there might be surviving um, specimens of your species. And I'll start gathering support, you know, laying the groundwork for if we find you to, you know, get you environmental protection, basically. Um, but then one of the military uh, airships finally gets over the pass, you know, finally finds a break in the winds, gets over the pass, and she has to flag it down uh, and convince them to talk with, you know, her government, who she doesn't even really trust in these matters. And... It's all really tense, but you get the feeling it's just these people who are scared of basically the idea that the monsters from their myths are coming back. Because, fun fact, the Dragonstone, yeah, that is, a that's Bloodstone. That's, a yikes. So, that was a result of humans figuring out a concoction to um, instantly fossilize all the dragon fetuses. Yeah, that is uh, literally a gemstone. That was created by murdering unborn hatchlings. It's it's literally like considered like a monstrous tragedy. When Isabella finds out that humans did that, she's just like breaking breaking down because she absolutely believes that they would have they could you know could have done that. She's seen them murdering other dragons for their bones. Uh, thank goodness they got the synthetic replacement. Or that would have been an awkward conversation. As it was, it was still awkward because, you know, she killed one or two dragons to, you know, learn about them. And she still felt bad about it, but she did it for science. And it's still like, yeah, these kind of are, like, our cousins. Uh, uh, it's interesting. So, all in all, great book. Uh, I can't do it justice. You, you really just need to read this series. The first book is a little slow to get started. I will freely admit that. But overall... I think A Natural History of Dragons, uh, the memoir of Lady Trent, that whole series is just fantastic. The first book is definitely the weakest, I will freely admit that again, but from two on out, it's just really good. If you like, like, scientific investigations of fantasy worlds or, you know, political maneuvering, if you just like dragons, this is a series for you, and the illustrations of the books are just gorgeous. You, your the first cut the book first book's cover is actually what drew uh drew me to it because this dragon uh but as you like moves from head to tail the it goes from you know scales to muscle to bone and it's like all this like massive diagram it's just ugh, I love it Murray Brennan I will definitely be looking for more of your books because you you know how to write really good characters you know how to do really good twists the draconian twist comes out of nowhere but when you look back. Everything fits. 
like all of it. The strange egg, hidden egg rooms that seem to have been, you know, outright, you know, that they were basically looking to outright attack, that they found with the dragons inside having died of starvation. Uh, the strange, the hero of the uh, sort of uh, Pacific Islands kind of area they went to that was supposed to have killed the dragons by turning them to stone, which is literally a recipe for use the biological warfare. <laughs> use the agent that's like literally just dragon, anti-dragon biological warfare, which is horrifying. Horrible people. Uh, and yeah. So yeah, I'd really like it, and I think more people should read it. Okay, well... Well, I'll see you guys. I guess I'll see you guys Friday. Um, make sure to check me out on Twitter and all that nonsense. But uh, yeah, you can find some links to all this stuff in the description. And I guess this will be it for this series, unless I, I hear there might be a sequel series, so I shouldn't say that. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and thank you for listening to the Dragon's Library. Please subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. The Dragon's Library releases new episodes Tuesday and Friday each week, and you can follow us on Twitter at dragon underscore library 2. If you want to suggest an episode topic, my email is in the description below. And as always, thank you so much for all your support.